I, I have had kids up here uh, chanting before, that's not fair, that's not fair. And said, yeah, you can, you can chant and actually um, begin to accept that this is definitely not a fair world. And the sooner you come to grips with that, it's really the better for you kids because then you're not going to hurt so much when the inevitable injustices um, happen. But ultimately, you don't want things to be fair because by that standard, we are doomed to hell. Like, from a perfect God, like, we have no access to him. It's not fair to have any access to him um, in perfection because we are imperfect. So, uh, so that wraps us up today. Uh, thank you for being here. <laughs> um, but I, I, it's, it's enough of a point now that it's really entertaining to see how that plays out, especially in kids, because kids are the unfiltered versions of adults. And so I think that's why Jesus said, yeah, come as children. All this filtered etiquette that you know, masks the truth of what are you really thinking? Uh, so in preparation for last Sunday, um, I was thinking about my kids and how they have, you know, kids are good at knowing injustice. And that's not fair, especially when they're on the lower end of that bargain. And so I, I've shared stories with you guys before about them and that. It's like, okay, let me ask the kids. I want to share a story to start to, to this teaching. And let me ask the kids, like, hey, here's what I'm trying to say, kids. There's been times where you had something good, right? And you were so happy about it. And it was great. And you were excited until you found out your sibling had something else that maybe you thought was a little bit better. Maybe it wasn't even better, but they also got something good. And now it's like, well, my thing's not as good anymore. And I've showed that commercial of that, I think, uh, progressive or Geico commercial where the little girl, like, you want a pony? And gives him a, a toy pony. And then the other girl's like, wow. And then he's to the other girl, like, you want a pony? Yeah, that too. And it brings out a real pony. And the other girl, like, oh. You didn't say I could have a real one. Like, it's brilliant. It's one of the best commercials ever. And, like, that's that's the way most of us are. Uh, so, my own kids, I said, you, are there any stories that you had um, that where you had something good until you found out your sibling had something different, and now even your good thing seems soiled, seems bad? And I was like, oh, for example, um, to them, they were all sitting on the couch, Sarah, Johnny, Peter, Billy. And I said, oh, for example, what happened this week where Billy went with a friend to a youth group and sang good on Wednesday night. And this youth group has bouncy house. And I was like, when Billy, it's a, it's a big thing. It's enough for the younger kids are like, I wish I could go to that. Um, so it's like, for example, when um, Johnny on Thursday night at bedtime had told Billy that you went to youth group, but um, we got Chick-fil-A when you were at youth group. <laughs> and so then Billy wakes up Friday morning and is in a pretty sour mood. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And and finally, eventually, she's like, I, I don't know, but I know Billy, or I know Johnny didn't have to tell me you all got Chick-fil-A when I was at youth group. I'm like, well, you... And so I was like telling the kids, like, you know that example where Billy went to youth group and had pizza, but then the young kids, you got to go to Chick-fil-A. And then Billy was upset, not because she had anything left, but because you had something too. And then JJ looks at Sarah and goes, Billy had pizza? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, JJ, thank you <laughs> that you're unfiltered. Thank you for all your ways that you helped me. 
I was like, perfect, perfect, perfect point. Thank you. That is so right. Um, there's also the children's book, The Little Red Hen. Anybody familiar with this? Where the hen is doing the job of like, hey, you've got the chicks in some versions of the story. I'm like, hey, I'm going to make bread. Um, do you want to help me? All the different animals like, nah, I don't want to help you with that. I don't know if that's work. Um, and then she does all the steps and then gets to the bread. And they say, hey, we want to help you eat it. And she's like, darn, that you weren't there. I was like, what about the alternative, much less satisfying version, where she does all the work, they turn her down at every step of the way, and then they knock the hen out of the way once the bread's done, and they take it and gobble it up. Like, what if that was the children's book? I was like, I hate that children's book. You know, it's like satisfying that those lazy animals get what they deserve, right? And because it would not appeal to our sense of justice if, those lazy animals got to take the fruit of it. So with that, I would like to read you, not from Luke 15 yet, which is where we're headed, but Matthew 20, actually. Um, you can listen along, you can look it up. Um, this is the New Living Translation version of the parable in Matthew 20 that Jesus told. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again. Sounds like a farmer around here. Like, you're always in town. When do you ever work? Uh, he was in town again. <laughs> just joking, just joking. I, I, I went over even worse at Rosendale, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, when those hired at five... Uh, they replied, sorry, lost my place. He asked them, why haven't you been working today at 5 o'clock? And they replied, because no one has hired us. And the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they'd receive some more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us. You worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. And I probably could mic drop on that and you take away a pretty powerful point mixed within the stories of the kids and our own sense of, that's not fair. And as much as you're like, well, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with, you know, JJ or Billy having pizza or Chick-fil-A. I, I would just laugh. It's not right. But how often really are we like, God, I don't like it your way. I, I have a better way. Um, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so you're like, okay, how does that apply? Are you someone who to God says, have it your way? Or are you someone to God who says, I like my way? And therefore, are you one that says, 
you are actually the distorted one from the way things should be. And you should see things more from my point of view. Like, I'm healthy, you're distorted, you're sick. Or, do you have it and you're like, I'm the sick one. I'm the one who needs my, my thinking changed, my ways changed. I need a new life. And you're the one who provides it. Where do you sit? Uh, we were talking about gender in Sunday school. And it's like, hey, is gender binary? Is it on or off? Is it one or the other? Is it one of two things? I think that conversation between are you sick or not is actually a binary decision as well. I either am like, ah, I'm mostly healthy. I've got a few symptoms, God. Um, but pretty much I'm healthy um, and I like my ways versus like, I hate my ways. I have nothing close to perfection and I am in need of a physician. And therefore, anytime I'm able to actually have access to the physician, whether I am in on a deathbed or it's a common cold with the symptoms, I am happy to have him and whatever he recommends and prescribes for me, um, as opposed to, I don't really need everything you have. Like, if you are prescribing me to cut this out or do this thing, like, that's not really fair because mostly I'm okay. That's not fair that you would only heal those who are sick when I'm mostly okay. So trying to connect those two a little bit. So now um, we are in Luke 15. Luke 15 is kind of like John 3.16. It's like everybody's been there. Everybody's heard this. The idea is to not let familiarity, you know, really tell the whole story. Um, that we would come at it with fresh eyes and fresh hearts um, to be able to read this. Like, hey, what's happening here? Alistair Begg has no less than six or seven teachings on Luke 15. So there's very high odds that Ken and I will um, expose you to his, um, his biblical teaching on this as well. Um, but I'm actually going to read all of Luke 15 this morning. I think it all applies. And then I want you to keep in mind where we started with this of that's not fair and, and where you fall in line. What is this story really about? So Luke 15, this is the English Standard Version. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost, until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous, healthy people who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, she loses just one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligence until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I've lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly, best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Uh, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat, let us celebrate. For this is my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours come, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So there you are, Luke 15. Really, uh, you could say a lot of, of these parables encompass um, a lot of the whole gospel, right? It kind of leads up to this, this whole theme that we're seeing here, particularly between the teachers of the law the religious powers at play, uh, and Jesus. So I do want to make a, well, in my teaching is a secondary point, but I think is absolutely a primary point, and Jesus says it quite clearly in his life and in the Gospels. You see those first two stories, lost sheep, lost coin. And what happens in both of those cases? Leave everything, search it out. For one, you are one, right? You sit amongst a crowd today. You are one of the many billions of people who have graced this earth or you haven't even made it out of the womb, right? You are one of billions, if not trillions. And sometimes you feel that way. I'm insignificant. I, what purpose, what would be changed if there was one less than a trillion? What would be changed? And that is simply not the case. You were created in uh, and by a father of love. You were created for purpose. You are no accident. You are not a simply a random chance or chaos molecules that manage to form themselves into a living walking being. You are a creation of the most high God. And you were created, as we see in the start of the Garden of Eden, to be in union with your father. That's the way things are to be. 
not this world that we have where it's death and darkness every time we turn the corner. And um, it's, it kind of sounds cliche, but I think it is really important. If Jesus would have had to die for one, just you, I believe he would have. And in fact, you, we get a sense that his death on the cross was actually probably the power of a trillion deaths on behalf of all humanity. I don't have a lot of scripture to like say what that was, but we just see the tremendous angst that Christ went through. And it, it's not, I don't think, too far to say his death covered over all sin as sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Jesus paid the, the price for death and sin for all men, including everything you, you as an individual have done. Now, it is worth pushing back on all my individuality because that is heralded and idol in especially our culture. However, it's not to lose sight of the fact that you are a key piece, a, a vital, important creation in the Father's kingdom, in his plan. His plan is to have you by the nature of your existence. And it's worth being reminded of that. However, that can be taken too far and say, you are valuable. You, 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 as Alistair pointed out a few weeks ago, like we're telling kids that a lot. I mean, like you have value. You have value as it comes to you by the creator, not the value that you managed to work up on your own because we've seen I am a failure and almost everything I try, any success I have was uh, because I had to grind so hard or I got lucky. But apart from anything you have done, you have value by the nature of your existence. So when I think we see that in the first two parables, obviously there's probably a lot more that can be brought out of those. I particularly wanted to hone in on the prodigal son today. And um, really that whole shaking your fist at God. There is that one Bible project video they censor out, but it's a cartoon. It gives the middle finger to God, right? And it's kind of like, whoa, that's a, that's a lot for a... A Christian video is like, that's pretty much what humanity does. Like, thanks for the thanks for the life I have. You know, see you later. I want to do things my way. So I would like to read to you um, another parable, and I think you will figure out the connection to not the prodigal son, but the older brother, and what we might refer to as older brother syndrome. Um, and I think the risk at Fillmore Christian is not so much the risk of squandering in reckless living, as we see in the younger son, and the beauty that is able to make such mistakes but then come home. I think the primary risk for us today in April 2023 is older brother syndrome. And that older brother syndrome is basically, Father, that's not fair. So I'll give you a couple checks for yourself to, to really do some examination here in a bit. But I want to start with another parable. Um, in Matthew 18 now, where Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with the servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, along with his children, and everything he owned, sell him to pay that debt. But the man fell down before his master, begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, 
He went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he'd forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Jesus ends it with saying, That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I don't think it's a matter of like, hey, your level of forgiveness merits your entry into heaven. I think it's because if you do not forgive, it is the one clear-cut sign that you're not doing the one thing or you do not have the one thing that actually would garner relationship with the Father, which is receiving the forgiveness of Christ, which is actually coming in under His grace and believing that He's paid the debt that you and I owe because the absolute necessary byproduct of understanding and believing in that tremendous grace that paid off the millions of dollars of debt in the form of sin that we've racked up is by looking at other debts and then being put into immediate perspective of the infinite debt we just have forgiven. And so it's not so much like you didn't forgive, you don't get in. It's like you didn't forgive, therefore you never understood the grace and never actually received and believed the grace that Jesus bought for you on the cross. Therefore, if you don't accept and believe and have faith that he actually paid that debt, then there's no sacrifice, there's no payment for your sin. And those left in their sin are destined to death. That is the status quo. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and uh, forgone the glory of Christ. And so all will die if they don't have someone to pay. No one gets paid unless they accept and believe in that payment paid by Christ. And if they don't, it's, and, and if they haven't received that, it's evidenced by the fact that you are still grasping for straws here in this world and you, you're unwilling to forgive. And we can place that and see that in the older brother's life. You notice what the father said to the older brother once he found out and was just so, um, so angry about the celebration for the younger brother. Everything you have is mine. There was nothing the older brother actually lacked. It was just the fact that the younger brother received forgiveness. So someone would say, and many of us would say, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't seem right that he would make such mistakes with his share of the inheritance and then be brought back into the family. Like it should cost him something. And that's the older brother's sense of justice. And we can, I think we can all relate. Yeah, that older brother is right. Like, how do you expect him not to just do that again? <laughs> like, when's he going to learn his lesson? But what we find is that it's not that the older brother 
is worried about, well, the, the state was here and now it's here and we're left with this. There was always enough in the story. For the, for in the father's household, always enough. The only place we see scarcity in this story is when you're outside of the father's household. That's where the scarcity comes in. In the father's household, abundance, which is exactly what we've all been promised. Like no needs will go unmet for us. And yet most of our anxieties are about the economy, changing political landscape. Are, are my work, Is my work going to be fruitful? Will my family have enough? We need this insurance and that. We have a lot of anxiety still about just basic provision. But in the Father's house, as promised multiple times in Scripture, there was never a question of enough. It was only outside the Father's house where scarcity entered. Right? And so it was not that the older brother lacked a thing. It was only the fact that someone else actually received the same and yet was deemed undeserving. Someone else had their debt forgiven, um, even though the father, uh, the, the older brother said, I, I don't even owe you a debt. I owe nothing to you, Father. I've given you everything I have. I owe you nothing. And I should be getting what's coming to me. And you see that as reference in the, the envy brought out by his example. Like, I never even received a goat to a little party with my friends. I want to party too. I've always wanted to party like him, but I stayed. It's not that I lack the temptations my younger brother did. It's just I had the self-control to fight it, Dad. And he didn't. And how's he going to learn? And why and how is that fair to me? I had the self-control. I've been working. It's on my efforts that I have stayed. Do you realize how hard that was? Do you realize the moments that I, I considered leaving but thought, no, I will stay because I realize that's the right thing to do. And you, you totally made me look like a fool. I look like the foolish one. In the same way that anybody who doesn't have student loans right now who might get forgiven, like, uh, you look like the foolish one. You shouldn't take off student debt because it's going to be forgiven. Like, I was the foolish one for staying, the older brother syndrome says. I should have sinned, therefore I could then receive the forgiveness of, of the father and come back in. I could have squandered my half too. But where would that left us, Dad? We wouldn't have ever had enough. You can just imagine all these stories. Um, going through the, the brother's head of like, I, I deserve this more than him. Son, you don't lack anything though. Why are, you, why are you so upset? Like we have more life in our household than we have before. Why are you so? Because I deserve more than him because of what he's chosen to do. Why do you deserve more than him? Because I am a part of your household. And so who owns these assets? Whose name is on the title? Yours, dad, but they, they are mine by my connection to you and you're honoring me and loving me. Yeah? Do you see where that breaks down, son? They're not yours in the first place. Everything You have the, the benefit of everything that I have without your name being on the title of all these treasures, of all these assets, of all this real estate, of all these, this livestock. Your problem is that I still have control, the father. The father still, it's his estate, and it's not yours. And as long as you need to play the game to stay in the estate, you're willing to do that. But ultimately you say, I want that for me. I want to own that. I want to own my life. I want to own my resources. I want to make my choices. And I've been playing your game to get that eventually to come to me, to receive your blessings 
I've been playing your game. And the father's, it kind of sense like, well, haven't you had all the blessings in the meantime? Yeah, but not in the way I want. And you can start to see, like, all right, this is me. <laughs> this is absolutely me. The Pharisees see Jesus. They do not deny the miracles. Like, all right, you're doing great works. There's no doubt there's some good things happening here. John the Baptist, we saw goodness out there in the desert. Like, hey, there's no doubt. Thanks, God's on the move. Something's up. But this is not the way we want it to be. This is not what we desired. It's not what we intended. Uh, I have a couple of tests for you to let you examine your own heart in this. Um, the first is four words that we've said often in this church. And I just want you, as I say these four words, I want you to notice where your thoughts or where your heart first goes. Right? And it, it is a bit of a, I think, a, a, a illumination of like, all right, this is, this is where my heart's at now, depending on the, how I feel about these four words. Okay, so again, don't like give yourself time like, all right, let me form the right answer, but just pay attention how you feel when I say these four words. Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. Okay, now you can get, all right, I sense that. What, what was your reaction? Um, there's a variety, I don't know, like what everyone's would be. I know um, I've often felt jealous of the thief on the cross. He had essentially what was a deathbed confession, right? He got to live life his way. And as Alistair Begg pointed out um, on Easter morning, he slips in at the last minute like, I don't know how I got here. I don't know, except the middle, a man on the middle cross. Right? And it's like, wow, what a guy. He got to do it his way. And then he still got everything the father had. Unbelievable. I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could have my cake and eat it too, as the cliche goes. Have my cake. I don't know what that means, honestly. I, like, I always eat the cake. <laughs> um, so I guess, oh, just to keep it pretty and I have a, something pretty and uh, my belly's also full. Um, to basically say, I get to live my way and then I still get everything the Father has. So that... Um, there's also those like thief on the cross. If you're like, thank God for the grace that could save a man who was being executed for his crimes and didn't require him understanding the doctrine of scripture or justification by faith. Thank God that it's not, it is as simple as a faith confession of the heart at any moment. I um, mean, there's probably a variety of other reactions with the thief on the cross. I would tell you, um, I, I want you to be really scared if there's any envy of the thief, thief on the cross because that's exactly the same uh, situation as the older brother to the younger. Where you're like, how did he get back to paradise? How did he come into the Father's estate again when he did what he did? And there's some more uh, jarring examples of like, what if it's some of the people who have hurt you that are actually that thief on the cross? What if it's your worst enemies? Ken uh, often is used the example of an Al-Qaeda fighter. You know, when those were seen as like, hey, that's the primary villain right now. Um, what about, we were talking about the culture wars, culture wars, and those with a sexual agenda um, who want to make sure we paint these uh, conversations about 
who we are and what our sexual preferences are, what our genders are in a particular way. What about someone who specifically has said, like, my job, my, my goal is to influence your children. Like, that's why I'm here is to influence your children and make sure they understand that biology is fluid. It is fluid. Like, there's, it's just the power structures that have put us in this place of male, female, white, black. It's all fluid. Um, we're all deceived. And they say, I'm specifically coming after your child to make sure they know that through whatever channel I have. And that person says that to you. I, I want your child. And then you get to the father's home. And that person is standing there at the feet of Jesus. Are you like, uh, I don't want that. That's a disgusting display of grace, father. Why would you forgive that person? And place that person in with any villain in your life. Someone who's taken from you that you have caused, have a debt against you. And say, that person, what if they're standing side by side as your brother and your sister in the kingdom of heaven? How would that make you feel? And you get a sense of any older brother syndrome happening in this heart. And if any older brother syndrome happening in this heart means that I don't understand how costly the grace is not for that person, but for me, that everything I had was the father's in the first place, even if I have managed to stay closer to home than the younger brother. And then maybe revealing that you actually aren't dependent on the grace of Christ at all. That you're only using your own efforts to say, look, still clean enough to present myself to the Father, even though you never wanted the Father in the first place. John Piper um, says it like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, wanting the Father. The essence of faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. If we are deeply and durably satisfied in God, we will glorify him by being satisfied in him through suffering as well as through prosperity. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do you want the father's estate because of what the estate ledger says or because it's the father's estate? Because of the father, that's why. It doesn't matter if all of the assets leave the estate, but the father's still there then I'm still here. It reminds me of Ruth, um, Naomi and Ruth, where Naomi had nothing to offer Ruth. Like, you should leave. I'm not, I love you. That's why I'm here. I have nowhere else to go, which reminds us of Jesus' words to Peter when after Jesus said, lay that hammer down, like, hey, following me isn't about bread and getting in power and gaining power that you think. It's about dying, it's about eating my flesh and body, which will die, is basically what he's saying to his, to the people. All the followers left, except the disciples. And aren't you going to leave too? Jesus said it's a hard teaching. Peter says, you're right, basically. It is hard. I don't understand, but I have nowhere else to go. And is that really what we are saying to the Father? I, I, I know I might have come to you, Father, at one point because of the good gifts I saw coming from you. But I stay because of you, even if those gifts disappear. Because now I trust you and not the things you can give me. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. And then another essay, uh, C.S. Lewis says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, outside of the Father. And out of that, um, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of man is trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Something other than God that will make him happy. So the plea then is watch out for older brother syndrome. And the risk, and actually the illumination that it says you have not depended upon the Father's grace at all. But you've depended on your ability just to to stay close to him on your own works, on your own efforts. Um, be aware of that. In Revelation, Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold, and the fact that you're lukewarm makes me want to vomit. It's sickening. But the younger brother went cold. You can imagine in your head like some of the scenarios of darkness and filth that he got involved in as he lived recklessly of just the hangovers, uh, the drugs in whatever form they were in in the story, um, the what he did to women and maybe worse. Um, you just imagine like the kind of darkness he, he, he felt and, and actually experienced. And to say, Jesus says that's preferable. That's preferable to the older brother to this lukewarm state of you think you're hot, but you're only here because of the things you can get from the Father. You don't care about the Father. That's the most dangerous state, Jesus said. That's incredible, because we don't treat it like that. I haven't treated it like that for most of my uh, pursuit, of, pursuit of Christ and pursuit of what's true. Uh, another little test, or the last one I'll give you today, is what... I, I talked about this before. It's not a perfect test. I talked to Sarah like, where does this break down? This week, this morning, wherever your timeline is, what's been annoying you? What has annoyed you? What's like, that is annoying to me. Annoyance, in many cases, I won't say all cases, but in many cases has its roots in entitlement. I'm annoyed by you or by this thing because I'm entitled having things this way, but they're this way. So therefore, I'm annoyed. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. You can use a lot of those words. Where have those thoughts or feelings entered your life? In very, very tiny ways or in very, very big ways? Like, take a quick inventory. Where have you been annoyed? Why? And we probably find in a lot of those cases, you dig down the roots, it's because you felt entitled. Who was the entitled one in the prodigal son story? The older brother. At first, it was actually the younger brother, right? I'm entitled to all the gifts now, and I'm going to throw myself completely into them. The older brother used his strength, but we find it wasn't because he was less entitled. He just used his own restraint for a while. We find that he was actually just as much entitled as the younger brother felt entitled, and therefore became irritated, became annoyed. It could be as simple as the relationships amongst your family, from uh, child to Parents, from brother to sister or siblings, it could be at work, boss to employee, whatever you stand on that. It could be spousal, definitely. I think how much entitled like we come into a marriage and 
you find out like, whoa, <laughs> I'm not getting what I thought I was entitled to when I got married. That's the way most marriages work. Um, you can find entitlement in our country, right? You'd say, oh yeah, entitlement's our problem in our country. Not so much that of like, I've said this, what makes you, as, as you see freedoms and liberties disappear, what made you feel entitled to those in the first place? Because it's existed 250 years before our existence? Like, that, you see a lot of entitlement and therefore anger when you see these liberties we were used to disappear. Why did you think we were entitled to them in the course of human history? Like, why does it frustrate you so much? I am sad about it too. I love liberty. It's amazing what liberty can do Historically speaking, at least how I understand it, and yet, as it slips away from us, outside of my, mostly my control, am I going to shake my fist? Like, that's not fair. Or it's like, hey, why, do I, why did I ever feel entitled to that in this world? Why do I feel entitled, if I do, to say to God, like, you better not let anything happen to my children. Like, I'm faith. I preach your word on Sundays. Don't let anything happen to my children, God. That's right. Where does that entitlement come from? We see the book of Job, I think, to to see God's extent of like, don't feel entitled to anything in this world. Job was a righteous man. He was living and seeking God. Satan wanted to test him, lost it all. And it hurt. There was a most of Job is lament and grieving. It hurts, it hurts. This it's not that it won't hurt. It's just the whole mindset of like, at what point do we lose something? And we're like, middle finger to you, Father. I never wanted you. I wanted what you gave me. Why would you take it from me? I've been so faithful. I've racked up a debt. I'm the one forgiving it. And just to get a glimpse, like, if this is in me, if this is in you, do you want to know? And so pay attention to these things. And it'll hurt. It hurts every time that I've known, like, wow. I was totally believing I was entitled to certain things that, Jesus, that God never promised me. And it changed my relationship with him. And so, Fillmore Christian, if you want to be as a part of this church family, let's not let apathy and lukewarmness exist. Let's actively check each other on our entitlements that God has never promised. What are we entitled to? Well, we were entitled to death. By our sin, that's really the only entitlement until, but God gave us Jesus and said, now you're not entitled to forgiveness, but it is open to you. You just have to step into it. And you, if you've never said, well, I've, I've kind of followed that story, but I've never really said my debts are forgiven. And therefore I care so little now about all the debts that have been owed to me too, because it all just fails in comparison with my blessing to give Okay, it only takes a dying to everything you are and then living in everything he created you to be. Through Christ, redeemed, redeemed on the cross. That's a good, that's a great story. And that's where I'm not afraid. I, I spoke, when I spoke at Rosendale, I said, hey, you all know me. I graduated the high school. I also threw my grandma under the bus. Like, um, Sorry, grandma. Um, but said, Nancy Hare obviously has a reputation in this community. What a woman, right? Um, and I said, Nancy Hare has value, not because of the good things she does. Etern uh, eternally has value, not because of any good she's ever done in Fillmore or the school district at large or the county, as they treated every moment that they were on the public ledger as a moment that the public needs to be honored. 
And I, I, I doubt you find anyone who did as well as Bill Hare and Nancy Hare that way. So Nancy Hare needs to get to heaven, right? Not on that filthy mess that she and Grandpa did. It was They were sinners, right? And I'm sorry I'm throwing you there today, but like she said this to me. Yes, I, I really did try to, we serve people well. But it is by Jesus that you have value that will last on. And that's where my grandpa, his, his, his value was in Jesus, not in anything we do here. The good works are great. We don't, we don't just throw them away. Like, oh, those are good when motivated out of Christ, right? And that's why I'm thankful that you pointed us to Christ, right? That's where I now have confidence in value. Because not, I see how fail, I, I am a failure in so much what I try, but Christ has redeemed all his failures. So thank you for pointing to Christ. And thank you uh, to my mother for doing that same, and father for doing the same thing. And that's where we all, that's where our value is at. Don't be afraid of failure. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that that's where true value lasts. Um, and, and actually where we can be united with the Father and not just pretend that we are um, because we want the good gift you have to offer. Let us hold ourselves in check. Let us be able to be revealed when we don't believe. Um, we're asking to help us in our unbelief. In our hearts, we want to be with you. And we don't want any of this false sense of what can be offered by this world. Thank you, we're with you. And we're just not. We're just sticking around for, for anything but you. Um, help us in this, Father. Let us illuminate the full cost of our sins so we can celebrate the full richness of your grace as found through Jesus' cross and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you stand with me and we'll sing our way out um, with...